Welcome to Season 2 of the Before They Were Beatles podcast. This season we'll take a look at the group's first few trips to Hamburg, Germany and their rise to be the most popular band in Liverpool. Before They Were Beatles, episode 17, top 10. In this episode, the Beatles return to Hamburg under promises to behave, take up residence at a new venue, make a record, sack their manager, and discover a haircut. This is a story of how one of thousands of amateur British schoolboy skiffle bands in the mid-1950s evolved into the beginnings of the greatest band in popular history. It's a story of hope, creativity, and exploring musical boundaries. It's also a story of tragedy, coincidence, and at times, just sheer luck. It is the story of beginnings, the story of John, Paul, George, and Ringo before they were Beatles. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Part 1, April 1961. The Beatles were keen to return to Hamburg to follow up on their contract with Peter Eckhorn to play at his new Top 10 club. Eckhorn had opened the Top 10 Club in October 1960 with Tony Sheridan and the Jets as the main attraction. The club was located in a former circus arena turned beer keller, formerly known as Die Hippodrome, known for community singing to a traditional umpar band. But the Beatles' run-ins with the local police and immigration authorities the previous year meant that they had a lot of official hoops to jump through before being allowed back in the country. Pete and Mona Best wrote letters to the appropriate West German authorities promising that the group members would behave. These were backed up by letters from Alan Williams, proving that he ran a legitimate talent agency, Stuart Sutcliffe, once more resident in Hamburg and now attending the State College of Art, and club owner Peter Eckhorn. The breakthrough came in a letter to Pete Best from the West German Immigration Office granting a one-year suspension of the deportation ban, provided that they paid a 158 Deutschmark bill to cover the cost of sending them home the previous year. Eckhorn paid the bill on behalf of Pete and Paul McCartney as an advance against future earnings. And with George now past his 18th birthday and legally allowed to be in the Hamburg nightclubs, the way was clear for their return. The finalised contract with Eckhorn for the top 10 club was pretty much the same as their previous Hamburg experience. The Beatles would be on stage from 7pm till 2am, Mondays through Fridays, and 7pm to 3am at the weekends, with a 15 minute break every half hour. The salary would be about 35 Deutschmarks, around £3 per man per day. But this time they would swap the dingy behind the cinema storeroom accommodations for four bunk beds in the attic above the club. With everything in place, the Beatles set off at the end of March and took to the stage at the Top 10 Club at Reaper Barn 136 in Hamburg on April 1st, 1961. Although some sources give the dates for the Top 10 engagement as starting on March 27th. By this stage, Stuart was a full-time art student and only played with the group on the odd occasion during this residency. There are notes that he would also sometimes sit in with some of the other Merseyside groups when they were visiting Hamburg too. At some point, Stuart needed cash for art supplies and sold his bass guitar to his fiancée Astrid's former boyfriend, Klaus Vormann, who went on to be an in-demand bass player in his own right. As the group had negotiated the deal with Peter Eckhorn and many of the previous three months' worth of gigs in Liverpool by themselves, they felt they no longer had any real need for a manager and decided it was time to officially part ways with Alan Williams. 
As Williams had always seen them as Stuart's group, it fell to Stuart to write the letter to Alan Williams, letting him know that as he had no longer taken an active part in the negotiations, they wouldn't be paying him his manager's commission and his services were no longer required. Williams was understandably upset, having felt that he'd been the one who took them to Hamburg in the first place and had helped in getting the deportation ban lifted. On the 20th of April, he wrote the group a scathing letter pointing out everything he believed he'd done, taking them to task for welching on their contract and threatening them with all sorts of dire consequences. I thought it might be fun to actually quote Alan Williams' letter at length. Jacaranda Enterprises, 20th of April, 1961. Dear all, I am very distressed to hear that you are contemplating not paying my commission out of your pay over so agreed in our contract for your engagement at the Top 10 Club. May I remind you, seeing you're all appearing to get more than a little swollen headed, that you would not even have smelled Hamburg if I had not made contacts, and by law it is illegal for any person under contract to make a contract through the first contract. I would also point out that the only reason that you are there is through the work I did and if you had tried yourselves to play at the top 10 without a bona fide contract and working through a British government approved agency, you would not be in Germany now. Remember, in your last contract under Koshmider, you agreed not to play 30 weeks from terminating that contract. The only reason you managed to get out of that was again through myself. So you see, lads, I'm very annoyed that you should Welsh on our signed contract. If you decide not to pay, I promise you that I shall have you out of Germany inside two weeks through several legal ways, and don't you think I'm bluffing? I will also submit a full report of your behaviour to the Agency Members Association, of which I am a full member, and every agent in England is a member, to protect agents from artists who misbehave and Welsh out of agreements. So if you want to play in Liverpool for all the local boys, you go right straight ahead and Welsh on your contract. Don't underestimate my ability to carry out what I have written. I have had the LGS, the Liverpool Jazz Society, offered me by the owner and Leach, that would be Sam Leach, will be out. Also, this week, the Casanova Club will be changing hands again. I hear that Leach is out, but I can't confirm this. My friend who has the agency in London is bringing Ray Charles over to England in September and they plan to do a tour. I had thought of you going on tour with him, but unless you honour your agreement, you can forget it. I will fix it for Rory Storm instead. This is no sprat. You check with the musical papers. Look, lads, I can do more for you than all the rest of the Liverpool put together if I want to. Remember, the others are only copying my original idea. In fact, I told Ray McFall to put on the on rock. That's Ray McFall, the owner of the cavern. So I think you are mad to try and make good with the Liverpool crowd who only want you to play for themselves. I don't want to fall out with you, but I can't abide anybody who does not honour their word or bond. I could have sworn you were all decent lads. That's why I pushed you when nobody else wanted to hear you. Yours sincerely, Alan Williams. As the contract that Alan Williams referred to so often was actually only a verbal agreement to help out and do something for them, he really didn't have a case. And it seems over the years, tempers seemed to cool, and as time passed, he accepted the situation. Even somewhat ironically, later titling his autobiography, The Man Who Gave the Beatles Away. Part 2, May 1961. Although no longer a member of the Beatles, Stuart and Astrid continued to attend their gigs at the top ten most nights. Astrid also continued to photograph the group whenever she got the opportunity. While Astrid focused on the group away from the stage, fellow photography student and friend Jürgen Vollmer would shoot pictures of the Beatles performing on stage, giving us a valuable record of the group at this early point in their career. Jürgen would also take pictures of the group on the streets of Hamburg, and perhaps his most famous image is the one he took of John Lennon in a darkened arched doorway at number one Jäger Passage that was used as a cover for John's 1975 solo album Rock and Roll, and was also used as the inspiration for the statue of John that now stands across the road from the site of the cavern in Liverpool. 
At some point around this time, Astrid cut Stuart's hair into the fashionable mop top style. Longish hair flattened and brushed forward with a fringe. A style that would eventually be known around the world as the Beetle Cut. In fact, there was even a song about it. At first, the four members of the Beatles thought it was hilariously funny and would tease Stuart about it and break into gales of laughter when they saw him. But gradually, one by one, John, Paul and George restyled their rock and roll quiffs into the mop-top cut. Pete was never convinced and kept his traditional rocker look. It was also during this period that they picked up another fashion cue from Stuart and started to wear leather trousers on stage to go with the leather jackets they were already sporting. Cowboy boots from a nearby jeans and western store completed the look. While they may have looked cool, the outfits were not the most practical for several hours of energetic playing and cavorting around the stage. Thankfully, Astrid and her family let the Beatles regularly use the bath at her house. Paul McCartney also took to playing the piano more as the guitar he'd bought just prior to the trip fell apart sooner after arriving, so he turned to playing the stage piano as backup. It was also during this trip that Paul first acquired a left-handed violin half and a bass after seeing that the bass player in Tony Sheridan's group used one. Another plus for the top 10 stage arrangement was the up-to-date sound system for the microphone setup that included an echo function. George in particular appreciated it, especially when performing Gene Vincent's Bebopalula, which fast became a crowd favourite. John's souvenir of this trip was the Hamburg throat. With long hours of singing, swearing and joking into those microphones, the lead singers of the groups would suffer from wear on their vocal cords not helped by the salty sea air of the port town. And while Paul and to a lesser extent George often took turns in singing the lead, it was John's voice that did most of the work. The result was a stronger, rougher voice that would prove to be so distinctive and of benefit on some of his later performances. As well as playing their own extensive and exhausting sets, the Beatles would also often back singer Tony Sheridan, now without the Jets, whose presence at the Top 10 Club had been the catalyst for them breaking their contract with Bruno Koschmeider at the Kaiser Keller the previous year, so they could go see, and occasionally play with, Sheridan at the rival venue. As well as being popular in the nightclub circuit, Sheridan at this point was also under contract with Deutsche Grammophon Company as part of its pop music Polydor label. One evening, Alfred Sachs, a music publisher, stopped by the Top 10 to speak to Sheridan and happened to catch him on stage with the Beatles. He was impressed enough by the combined sound of Sheridan and the Beatles that he suggested to his friend Bert Kampfer, who was a producer at Polydor, that he sh should look into recording them together. Other sources suggest that it was a German pop singer with a stage named Tommy Kent, who was being produced by Kampfer, that saw them at the top 10 and was impressed enough to bring Kampfer and his wife back to the club the following evening to check them out. As well as being a producer for Polydor, Kempfert was a band leader and composer in his own right and had had a number one hit in the US with Wonderland by Night. Perhaps more impressively 
As far as the Beatles were concerned, Kempfert was also part of the team that had turned the German folk song Moose Eye Den into the song Wooden Heart for Elvis Presley, who had recorded the tune the year before. You see, I love you. Please don't break my heart in two. That's not hard to do, cause I don't have a wooden Intrigued by the idea of the Sheridan Beatles combo, Kempfer invited the Beatles to his office to discuss a recording and publishing contract. The four young men, impressed by the invitation and the talk of recording contracts, readily agreed. They signed with Kempfer as an independent producer, and he then assigned any subsequent recordings to the Polydor label. Part 3, June 1961. On the morning of June 22nd, two taxis arrived at the Top 10 Club to take the weary Beatles with just a few hours of sleep behind them and their equipment to the recording studio. In fact, the so-called studio was at the Friedrich Arbert Halle, an empty school hall across the river in the south of Hamburg. The group was positioned on stage and a curtain closed around them to provide sound deadening to keep out any ambient noise. The session was engineered by one Karl Heinz, who was used to recording the more laid-back style of the German pop singers. His verdict on these English musicians was that they were, quote, loud. The contract with Burt Kempfer specified that the group called the Beatles consisted of the following members. John W. Lennon of 251 Manlove Avenue, Walton, Liverpool 25. James Paul McCartney of 20 Fortlin Road, Liverpool 18. George Harrison of 25 Upton Green Speak, Liverpool 24. And Peter Best of 8 Hyman's Green, Liverpool 12. Mr. Stuart Sutcliffe of Hamburg was not included but did attend the recording sessions as an observer and to give his friends moral support. The recording sessions with Tony Sheridan produced five songs. My Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean. George and Sheridan playing lead, and with both German and English language introductions. And when the Saints go marching in, As well as a Tony Sheridan pen number, Why Can't You Love Me Again, Hank Snow's Nobody's Child, and Jimmy Reed's Take Out Some Insurance On Me Baby. 
My Bonnie and the Saints, as they were labelled, were released in August on the Polydor label credited to Tony Sheridan and the Beat Brothers. Apparently the label was worried that the word Beatles sounded too close to a German slang word for penis. The Beatles also made two recordings without Sheridan. Ain't She Sweet with John on lead vocal. and the unique Lennon-Harrison instrumental Cry for a Shadow, which you've been hearing at the beginning and end of each podcast episode this season. Cry for a Shadow was the result of a prank that John and George played on Rory Storm. He and his Hurricanes, including Ringo, were back in Hamburg too, and they had got word that the Shadows had made the UK charts with a theme for a movie called The Frightened City, and Rory was wondering how it went. John and George said they'd heard it, they hadn't, and made up a tune on the spur of the moment, telling him that that was the movie's theme tune. That tune was refined and eventually recorded as the ironically named Cry for a Shadow. According to some accounts, a total of seven tracks were recorded over a two-day session. However, there is some doubt as to the exact dates and location that the recordings took place on. The only documented evidence is from notes on a 1984 CD reissue of the recordings. An English translation of the contract with Camphert, done for Brian Epstein at the end of 1961, dates it as running from July 1st, 1961, but the Beatles were back in Liverpool by the 3rd of July, so the recordings must have taken place before the contract was dated. Maybe this was a mistake during the translation process, and it should have read June 1st. The Beatles completed what had amounted to a 13-week residency at the Top 10 Club on July 1st, having played for 503 hours over 92 nights. They travelled back to Liverpool over July 2nd and 3rd. Yet again, they returned from Hamburg with renewed stamina and an unparalleled versatile set, matched with an untouchable stage presence. In our next episode, the leather-clad, savage young Beatles continue to take Liverpool by storm. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Before They Were Beatles podcast. If you would like to leave a rating or a review on your favourite podcast platform, that would be great. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. The music heard in this episode included The Beatles, Cry for a Shadow, Donna Lynn, My Boyfriend Got a Beatle Haircut, Burt Camphart, Wonderland by Night, Elvis Presley, Wooden Heart, Tony Sheridan and the Beat Brothers, My Bonnie, Tony Sheridan and the Beat Brothers, The Saints, The Beatles, Ain't She Sweet. You can find full versions of the music heard in this episode in the dedicated Before They Were Beatles podcast YouTube channel, for which I'll add a link in the show notes. If you would like to make a comment or ask a question, you can follow the podcast Twitter account at Before Beatles. You can also find copies of the original Before They Were Beatles book on Amazon in hardcover, paperback and Kindle editions. I'm your host, writer and producer, Alan J. Porter. Stay well, stay safe and enjoy peace and love. Before They Were Beatles podcast is a production of Megrid Entertainment, a division of 4J's group, LLC.